Tala, and uh, hello everyone. It's good to be with you again. And uh, let me, uh, like uh, Lachlan, just say uh, what a good night it was on Thursday night. Uh, great thanks to everyone who was involved in that night and uh, who, who was part of watching the live stream and the demonstration of making sourdough and, and perhaps tried to invite family or friends and, and maybe you are with us this morning and you were invited on Thursday night. A really good night and uh, it was a good thing for us to do as we thought hard about what it means that Jesus is the bread of life that God has sent into the world. Uh, have you ever had the experience of driving um, either first thing in the morning just as the sun is coming up or last thing in the day just as it's going down again? And uh, as the sun sits there just above the horizon, depending on the street that you're on, uh, it might be kind of shining directly in your eyes, uh, full on the face, right through the windscreen. And perhaps you try and pull down the sun visor a little bit and, and block it out, but really the only way you can do that effectively is if you pull the sun visor down far enough that you kind of block out the whole windscreen and can't see anything, which isn't that good for driving. Um, have you had that experience of driving at those times of the day? Um, driving in the middle of the day is wonderful. The sun is up high, the visibility is perfect, and it's as easy as you like. But but in the early morning and late in the afternoon, just as the sun is sitting above the horizon, if it's right in your face, uh, shining right in your eyes, it can be almost impossible to see anything. And that's what light is like, isn't it? It can illuminate things wonderfully and it can also blind completely. And in this chapter, John chapter 9, we find that exactly the same thing is true when it comes to Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, the burden of this passage today uh, is given to us by Jesus in exactly these terms, the verse that Tala read for us. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Uh, perhaps our instinct is to think that Jesus has come to give light and life to everyone and of course there's a sense in which this is true because God in this way loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and and so in this verse Jesus says that yes some people as they encounter him will come to see wonderfully and they will come into the light and move from blindness to sight but Jesus is also realistic enough to know that not everyone will trust in him, not everyone will accept him, not everyone will follow him and just as some people stubbornly refuse to admit when they are sick and so they don't go to the doctor for the medicine that they need, Jesus says some people are so convinced that they can already see just fine without him that actually all they really do is reveal the blindness that they deny. And so we've got these two outcomes as people encounter Jesus, the blind who see and those who see but become blind. And we're going to take some time this morning to look at each one of these outcomes. I, I do hope you've got a Bible there. Uh, as always, uh, the, the details of the text are where we find the treasure of the text. And, and there are details through this chapter that I really hope that you'll be able to follow along with me and pay attention to as we try to work it all out. So first of all, the blind who see. The passage revolves around this man who was blind from birth. Um, by the end of the chapter, it's really clear that the blindness that Jesus is ultimately talking about is spiritual, not physical. 
But what better way to illustrate all that by, than by giving sight to a man who was born blind? And it's clearly a very important point in this chapter because as the chapter goes on, um, no less than six, maybe even seven times more, we are reminded that this man was born blind. In fact, for the man's neighbours at first and then after that for the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, one of the central problems of this chapter is whether they are really dealing with the same man who was born blind, and if they are, was he really actually born blind? Uh, The man himself, as well as his parents, and John, our author, all insist that, yes, it is the same man, and yes, he really, truly was born blind. But I think we see the reason for this issue in verse 32, where the man declares... Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Um, I'm not sure I've really appreciated this in the past as much as I probably should have. But almost every commentary that I've read this week has drawn attention to the fact that for Jesus to give sight to this man who is born blind is something truly singular and absolutely extraordinary. Uh, this is not something that we find in the Old Testament, for example. It's, it's not something that we find later on in the book of Acts. This is a Jesus-only kind of miracle. Uh, one thing we must be clear about, though, is that this man's blindness was not a punishment for sin. Because uh, that's the question the disciples ask in verse 2. Uh, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. Uh, It's not that the connection between sickness and sin is illegitimate. In fact, in other passages, Jesus himself is the one who connects these two things. Because the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. The reason death is in the world is because sin is in the world. And therefore, sickness and disease and suffering are in the world because those things are just one step on the path to death. But you see, there's not always a one-to-one correspondence between all these things. And so in this particular case, Jesus declares in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, this whole passage is is a display of the work of God in this man's life. If we want to see what it looks like when God is at work in a person to bring them from darkness into his wonderful light... John 9 is the place for us to go. Uh, The next thing Jesus does, though, in verse 6, and and a bit strangely, I think, we're given a lot of detail about this. And the reasons for that we'll need to think about later on. Uh, But Jesus spits on the ground and he makes some mud with the saliva and then he puts the mud on the man's eyes and he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And at the end of verse 7, we learn that the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. There's no kind of fanfare about that. There's no song and dance. The facts are simply told to us as they happened. But from this point on, there's a series of five conversations that kind of unfold. Uh, First, the man and his neighbours, then the man and the Jewish leaders, then the Jewish leaders and the man's parents, then the man and the Jewish leaders again, and finally, the man and Jesus Um, Already the man is able to see physically for the first time in his life. By the time these five conversations are done, he will also be able to see spiritually 
for the first time in his life. And it is a progression for this man. It, uh, he doesn't come to understand everything about Jesus all in one go. Um, it's a gradual coming into the light. So if you follow this through with me, verse 11, for example, he speaks of, to his neighbours, he speaks of the man they call Jesus. In verse 17, he calls Jesus a prophet. Uh, in verse 33, he tells the Jewish religious leaders, look, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In verse 38, he calls Jesus Lord and he declares his trust in Jesus and he worships Jesus. And so there's a progression here as the man comes to believe in Christ. Uh, what's quite amazing, though, is it's a progression that takes place largely in the absence of Jesus. Because after verse 7, we really don't see or hear from him again until verse 36. And so this work of God takes place in the absence of Jesus. Uh, even more, it's a progression that takes place in the presence of fierce opposition from the Jewish leaders, even to the point that eventually they expel this man from the synagogue because of the things he says about Jesus. Uh, as we try to share the gospel with people, I'm sure our normal instinct is to try to protect them from opposition because we worry that uh, opposition will kind of put them off and turn them away from Jesus. Now, one of the problems with that is it's not always possible to avoid opposition for following Jesus. We heard from him last week in chapter 7, the world hates him. And so we certainly shouldn't be surprised when the world also hates those who love him. But you see, such is the powerful mercy of God that he is able at times even to use opposition to strengthen a person's faith and to establish their clarity about what it means to trust and to follow Jesus. And that's what we see here with the man born blind. It is clear that he is the man born blind. It is clear that he is now able to see. It is clear that Jesus is the one who has brought about this miracle and as the Jewish leaders refuse to accept all these well-established facts, the man only grows in his conviction. And they get more angry at him and he gets clearer with them. And by the end of the conversation, it's not his faith that surprises him so much as their lack of faith. In fact, he kind of exclaims in, in verse 30, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It is remarkable what the Jewish leaders are doing. That's how the man responds. Um, this is the thing that people so often get wrong, I think about what it means to be a Christian or, or to not be a Christian. Uh, certainly in the media and, and in social media, the common view of things seems to be that faith is the irrational position, just a complete shot in the dark in the absence of evidence. But actually, biblical faith, faith in the gospel, is always based on evidence. In this particular case, a man born blind who is now able to see. Ultimately, 
a Roman cross outside Jerusalem and a rich man's empty tomb with the grave clothes still inside it. It's not irrational to believe the gospel and trust in Jesus. The irrational position is actually to not believe. A shot in the dark in the face of the evidence. But the man himself can't deny what's happened. There's just no getting around it for him. As he himself testifies in words that have worked their way into the most famous of hymns, because they are not just his story, but rather the story of every person who believes in Jesus. He says in verse 25, I once was blind, but now I see. Well, that's one half of the story. What about the other half? What about for those who think they see but actually, as they encounter Jesus, they become blind instead. Uh, I said before that for the man's neighbours and then after that for the Jewish leaders, one of the main problems in this chapter is whether they are still dealing with the man who was thought to have been born blind. And, and if they are dealing with that man, was he really truly born blind? And so you follow this through with me. Uh, verse 8, for example... Uh, he, he's just come home seeing, in verse 8, his neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said no, he only looks like him. Or, or verse 18, uh, they, uh, the Jewish leaders that is, um, they still did not believe that he had been born blind. Sorry, I think I've forgotten to put this one on the screen, that's okay, I'll read it for you, verse 18. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they asked for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? In verse 20, the parents answer, we know that he's our son and we know that he was born blind. Do you see that issue? Again and again, they're trying to work out, is this the man and was he really born blind? But you see, alongside that, though, there is a second issue that runs through this chapter and runs through all of the conversations of this chapter. And that is precisely how the man was healed. Uh, not just that uncommonly detailed description in verse 6 of all the different things that Jesus did as he spat on the ground and he made some mud and he put it on the man's eyes and sent him to go and wash, but also verse 10, for example, where the neighbours asked him, how then were your eyes opened? And he goes on and explains all the things Jesus did. Or verse 15, where the Pharisees ask him how he received his sight, and he explains it all again. Or verse 19, when they ask the man's parents, how is it that he can now see? And the parents answer in verse 21, but how he can now see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. In verse 26, they ask him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, friends, why are these the two issues that run through this chapter? First of all, the identity of the man and whether he really is the one who was blind from birth. And secondly, the manner by which Jesus performs the miracle. Why are these the two issues? I think the key is in verse 14. Because we're told in verse 14... 
Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. There's two important pieces of information in this verse. As far as the Jewish leaders are concerned, whichever one is true will lead to a completely different conclusion about Jesus. The first piece of information is that Jesus made mud on the Sabbath. That may not seem like a big deal to us, but for the Jewish leaders to break the Sabbath was one of the most serious sins a person could commit. These guys were scrupulous about keeping the Sabbath laws. In fact, this is where some of them think that Jesus has gone wrong. See, according to uh, the Old Testament, it's not really clear that Jesus has broken any laws or disobeyed anything. When the Old Testament laws talked about keeping the Sabbath and resting on the Sabbath, it's really talking about resting from the typical work that one normally did. But the, the Jewish leaders were so... Um, keen to make sure that no one broke this Sabbath law. They were so committed to making sure that this was obeyed. They had actually developed their own set of Sabbath traditions, their own very long list of, of specific behaviours that would constitute doing work on the Sabbath. One of the things included on their list was kneading, as in kneading dough to make bread. And you see, this is why they're so interested in exactly what Jesus did and how it was that he opened the man's eyes. Because if it could be proven that he used his spit to knead the dirt to make some mud, then that would make him a lawbreaker, in which case the first half of verse 16 is now very much in play. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. On the other hand, though, back in verse 14, the second piece of information that we were given is that Jesus opened the man's eyes on a Sabbath. And you see, this is why the Jewish leaders are so obsessed with making sure that this really is the man who was born blind. Because if Jesus made a blind man see again, then we move into the second half of verse 16. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? Do you see the dilemma? One piece of evidence leads one way. If he's broken the Sabbath, he must be a sinner. The other piece of evidence leads in the opposite direction entirely. If he's made a man born blind see again, he must be from God. But actually, this is not a dilemma at all, is it? The answer here is completely obvious. Even a child could work it out. See, which piece of evidence is more significant? Which piece of evidence is more compelling? Which piece of evidence carries the most weight? The breaking of a rule by a mere technicality? And a rule at that which was not even one of God's laws but was simply a man-made tradition? Or giving sight to a man born blind. A thing so wonderful and so remarkable that no one has ever heard of such a thing happening before. If ever we were to find ourselves in Captain Obvious territory, 
this is it. But see, the Jewish leaders stubbornly refuse to admit what is obvious, even to a blind man, even certainly to a blind man who can now see. They insist on judging Jesus by their own standards, by their own criteria, by their own man-made traditions. They imagine themselves already to be in the light and able to see. But in fact, all they do is confirm that they are still stuck in the dark and they are just as blind spiritually as the man was physically all the way back in chapter 9, verse 1. The true light that gives light to every man has come into the world. But rather than lighting up the path to God for the Jewish leaders who reject Jesus, he is a blinding light. And they are left in the dark. Well, what about us today? What's in this for us? How are we meant to respond to what we've seen in John 9? Uh, the simple truth is that what Jesus says of himself in verse 39 is as true today as when he first said it. Uh, always there are two outcomes when it comes to us and Jesus. We can come to see or we can become blind. The difference turns on whether we are willing to accept that we are naturally blind, blind from birth, if you like, and that Jesus alone is the light of the world, the King and Saviour who died on the cross for us so that our sins might be forgiven and we might have the gift of eternal life. To borrow from the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts, this promise is for us and, and it's for our children and it's for all who are far off and it's for everyone whom the Lord our God calls. So we run a night like Thursday night, sourdough for curious cooks and yes, we want to have some fun and learn how to make sourdough bread but what we really long for is that people would become curious about Jesus and we strive with all that we can to proclaim him and we pray that people would come to accept him and to know him as the light of the world. But ultimately, that is God's work to do. And so we engage in all of it, uh, prayerfully, seeking God's mercy. And the same is true for us this morning. Friends, if you've been listening this morning and you know that you have not ever yet recognised that Jesus alone is the light of the world... Call out to God. Admit your natural blindness. Confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in him. And you shall come to see for the first time in your life. And you'll come into the light of God's salvation. Don't be arrogant like the Jewish leaders who were so convinced that they could see already and therefore they sought to judge Jesus by their own standards and their own criteria rather than carefully considering the things he actually said and did. That way lies only darkness and death. And if you've been listening this morning as someone who already recognises that Jesus is the light of the world, and I know that's many of you, 
Uh, Give thanks to God that through Christ you once were blind, but now you see. And remind yourself daily of that amazing grace which you have received. And set yourself to continue steadfastly living in the light, recognising Jesus as Lord, believing in him, serving him, abiding in him, loving him, obeying him, holding on to his words of eternal life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus. We are so thankful that you have sent him into the world to bring light and life and salvation and to open blind eyes. And we're thankful that we once were blind, but now in Christ we can see. Thank you for the grace that you have shown to us. We pray that many who we know who are still in darkness, by your mercy, might come into the light. Please help this to be the case that Christ would be honoured and glorified and we might have much joy. Amen.